Good morning. It's a wonderful morning here. And uh, hopefully we'll all enjoy the sunshine today, especially the mothers. So this morning we're reading from Romans 3, starting verse 19 up to the end of that chapter. So Romans 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. May God add blessing and wisdom to his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for everything you have blessed us with here today. Father, we come in thanksgiving despite all circumstances because of the salvation that has been wrought by Jesus Christ, which has been freely given to us. And so we give you praise and thanks, and may we order our minds now this morning, bring them from all the distractions, the trials, and tribulations and concerns that we carry here today, we place those at your feet, knowing that you care for us and all things go according to your design, your plan. And so we ask you for every good thing this morning, God, but allow us, I pray, to now trust you with those things that we bear so that our joy may be complete this morning that we may focus on the good news of what we have received in Jesus and celebrate this morning what you have done. We pray especially for the moms this morning. We have a hallmark holiday to celebrate, and we just thank you so much that we have spiritual mothers and physical mothers, those who have adopted us, those who gave birth to us. And Lord, we just pray that you would fulfill 
our need for community and family through the mothers that you provide. God, I pray that you would sanctify us now as we come to your word, that it would not just be spoken, it would not just be talked about and, and forgotten, but that our lives would be changed as we come to your perfect word. We ask this for the glory of Jesus and our good. Amen. The gospel, the, the good news of salvation through Christ Jesus, is not only for all kinds of people, but it is God's means for bringing about the unity of His chosen people. And so Paul's letter to the Romans uh, de- deals with conflict in the church. There is disunity. The, the Jewish believers or, and the, the non-Jewish or Gentile believers were, were struggling to see themselves as one unified body in Christ. So beneath this unity problem, then, is a theological problem. Up until this point in Romans, Paul has been demonstrating that both Jews and Gentiles are in the same boat. Both are under sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. Now we come to talk about the law in Romans. The law was an important part of the unique covenant God made with the Jews. It was intended to speak to them. It was intended to guide their lives. It was not intended for the Gentiles. But as we have seen, the nation of Israel had utterly failed to keep God's law. Romans 2.23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. And so, as a result, the Jews were no better off than the Gentiles. In fact, their failure to obey the law showed, Romans 2.25, that they were really actually Gentiles at heart, externally Jews, but their hearts were exactly the same as Gentile hearts. The point is that the Jews needed the salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ every bit as much as the Gentiles do. So, he speaks in 3.19 of those who are under the law. Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The, The proof that the Jews would not be justified in God's sight through the law is found in that very same system. Every time an Israelite sinned, he or she had to bring an offering to the temple to make atonement for their sin. And every year, the high priest had to offer a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement for all of Israel's sins, because the the sins were were plentiful and many. And so Hebrews 10.3 says that in these sacrifices, there was a reminder of sins year after year. And so the law not only exposed sin by telling us what we should do and what we shouldn't do, but the law also had this reminder through the sacrificial system, oh, look, we sinned again. Oh, look, we're all sinning all the time. Why are there endless sacrifices taking place? Oh, we are constantly failing to keep this law. And so Paul's point is that the Jewish law, by condemning Jewish failures, silences all claims by Jews to be superior to the Gentiles. And if those who had grown up with this, if those who had grown up being told how God expects them to live, they have failed, well, how much worse off are those who did not have this benefit? 
That is, if the Jews who had this amazing privilege of God's covenant and who had this amazing privilege of possessing God's law, even if they cannot be justified in God's sight by keeping it because all have failed to do so, then what hope do the rest of us have? The whole world is under God's condemnation since those without the law have no chance at all of living as He commands. And so in summation, we have here this morning, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every mouth is stopped. That is, all people without exception have no argument to plead in self-defense before God. You know, in our minds we do this. We sin, and then we give God the excuses. There is no defense for sin before God. All deserve condemnation and judgment. There is nothing at all to say in our defense before the accusation that comes against us from the law of God. Because the law reveals sin. It tells us what sin is. But it does not make people righteous, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Works of the law, that is, keeping it, will not justify anyone, since nobody keeps all of what the law commands. No one can string together enough obedience to merit a favorable verdict from God. None of us can string together enough days of doing good to deserve anything good from God. All are under sin, chapter 3, verse 9. None is righteous, no, not one, verse 10. And all fall short of the glory of God. This final reference to the universality of sin in humans, that is that we all sin, draws a direct connection back to our first ancestor, Adam, and what he possessed at his creation and lost at his fall. Adam lost his glory because he and Eve wanted to be like God instead of delighting in God's lordship. And so to fall short of the glory of God is not to compare human glory with God's own glory, in which there is an unfathomable gap, even in the original and future glory of man, but it is to say that like Adam, all have lost their created ability to image God rightly. We all fall short of imaging God's nature and character by the way we live our lives, which also means losing divine life and eternal life as well. This is the bad news. All the way up until now, from Romans 1.18 to now, is the bad news a hopeless situation? But it is only when we recognize our hopeless state that we are then prepared to come to God for help. And that help the gospel that Paul preaches is presented as God's own solution in what follows, Romans 3.21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that he might be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, every gospel presentation has this turn, but now, but God. Here is the turn. This is the point that Paul has been working towards since chapter 1, verse 18. After giving notice to the terrible situation for sinful humanity, he comes back to flesh out the thesis statement in Romans 1, 16 and 17. And we are working on memorizing that as a church. So will you quote it or read it with me? Uh, Romans 1, 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, when we went through this passage, we promised that the rest of Romans was going to flesh this out, that we were going to have a better understanding of what this means as we go through the rest. And, and I, I continue to, to draw your attention to that. The saving promises of God have not been fulfilled by keeping the law, since all have failed and fall short of the glory of God. Both Jew and Gentile have replicated the sin of Adam in, in our own lives, in our own history. Doing what God commands as a means to secure God's favorable verdict would never happen in fallen humanity. Law observance would never bring us justification, and that was never its intent. In fact, one of the functions of the law was to do the exact opposite. It was to make people conscious of their sin. And so the, the problem, though, is, is not the law. The law of God is perfect. The problem was that it, it is used in a way that was never its intended purpose. Verse 21, the law and prophets, that is the whole Old Testament, bear witness to the fact that right relationship with God and being made righteous does not come by our personal achievement, but by faith, that is depending wholly on God. So this was not some new, novel teaching. This wasn't some invention of Paul and unheard of in the Old Testament. This isn't where the New Testament differs from the Old Testament. This doctrine that is now crystal clear in the work of Jesus Christ is the same way of salvation that God proclaimed to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to Jeremiah, to Isaiah. The just shall live by faith. Justification is by faith alone. The Old Testament itself acknowledges that the promises of salvation would not come through the Old Covenant, but that a new covenant was necessary to fulfill and surpass the covenant with Moses. A day was coming, Jeremiah 31, 33, when God would write His law on the hearts of His people and cause them to obey His commands. So the law tells us that we're sinners, and then the prophets tell us we need a new covenant. This law will not fix us. It only shows us how broken we are, how sinful. Two prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, bore witness to the righteousness of God coming apart from the law. What was shocking to some first century Jews was that this righteousness of God was manifested apart from the law not only to Jews but to Gentiles as well. Not that this 
should have shocked them either, as this is another common theme in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah 19 and 49 and 55. And so this was another promise. First of all, we're told in the Old Testament that the law is not going to cut it. The law is not going to make us righteous. We're then told that there's a new covenant that is necessary, one that will fulfill and surpass the old covenant. This is also in the Old Testament. And as well in the Old Testament is the promise that it will not now just be Jews who are part of the covenant, but that God will bring people from every nation, tongue, and tribe into His people through the new covenant. The saving righteousness of God is not available through the law, but it has been revealed in Jesus Christ and His atoning death. The promises made to Israel have been fulfilled, but they have been fulfilled in a surprising way through the death of Jesus on the cross. And the promises have been fulfilled in a surprising group of people. Although the law and the prophets already bore witness This salvation was for all people from every nation, tongue, and tribe, people from all over. And this is the emphatic point that Paul has been making since chapter 1, verse 18, that every human being has sinned against God and is deserving of His judgment so that there is now no longer any distinction between people, groups, or ethnicity before God. But human sinfulness is not the end of the story. God has acted on our behalf, sending Jesus Christ to redeem us. Verse 24, all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Just as there's no distinction in sinfulness, all are sinful, there is now no distinction on how Jews and Gentiles may be justified. They were now one people, not two. The righteousness that all human beings lack can only come in one way, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You see, all along, Paul has never lost sight of the reason he is making this case for faith in Romans. He's explaining the gospel, which is good for us because we need it, but he's got a purpose in the context, the point that the Jew and Gentile alike must come to God on the same terms. So this church that is struggling with disunity because they're, they're of mixed ethnicity and they can't get along, they think that some are superior to others, Paul's putting everyone in the same boat. Some of us grew up in church. We learned the rules. We got the Sunday school lessons. We had the Word. And we're in the exact same boat as those who just discovered it today. All in desperate need for God to save. People experience God's salvation as they trust Him for it. This is the same way people were saved in the Old Testament as it is now, although it's much more clear what the, the way of this salvation and how it came through Christ Jesus now. Now, some people believe that the very act of believing is what merits God's favor and earns them a place in His kingdom. But that is not what the apostle means here. Faith is not the means by which God's righteousness is applied to His chosen people. God-gifted faith is the manner by which it is made known to us that God has made us righteous in Christ. 
Perhaps a more accurate way to state the doctrine of salvation by faith alone is to say that justification is by Christ alone. It is Christ's righteousness alone that justifies us. It is His merit alone that provides a place for us in the kingdom of God. Faith links us to Him so that we participate in His righteousness in the sight of God. But this, this is a righteousness that is given as a free gift to every person that trusts in Christ. So, faith isn't the power that, that actually justifies us. It is Christ, His work, His perfect obedience, even death on a cross, paying the price for us. But faith is the way in which we know that that's for us. And we begin to live in response to it. It becomes something we know. Leighton last week was talking about the woman in, in Mark 5 with the issue of blood, and she comes and she touches Jesus' robe, and a power comes out of Jesus and she's healed, and then Jesus turns to her and says, sister, your, your faith has made you whole, which has caused some people to put inordinate uh, expectation on faith, that faith has this sort of power. If you just have faith, faith will do it. And, and along the same lines, people believe that faith is saving them. Faith can't save you. Faith connects you to the source of your salvation. So also with the woman with the issue of blood, her faith didn't heal her. The power came where? The power didn't come bubble up out of her as she had faith. The power came out of Jesus. Her faith brought her to Jesus. Faith causes us to connect to where this healing power comes from, to connect to where this saving power comes from. Faith links us to Him so that we participate in Christ's righteousness in the sight of God. People experience God's salvation through faith in Jesus Christ as they trust Him for salvation. This justification, verse 24, is something that God bestows as a gift. It means that it cannot be imposed by obligation. It cannot be earned. It cannot be deserved. Believers are justified freely, both faith and God's grace are gifts, Ephesians 2.9, so that no one may boast. And while salvation is free to us, verse 25, it came at a great cost to God. The life of Jesus Christ was given as the price of our redemption put forward, it says, as a propitiation by His blood. Now, this is a word that everybody knows what it means right from grade school, so I won't bother to explain it. No, this means that, that God sent Jesus into the world to placate His wrath, to shield us from His holy and righteous response to sin. That is that Jesus' sacrifice was made to satisfy all of the requisite punishment for the committing of sins, God's justice. I want to say something that may shock you. God never pronounces guilty people innocent. God never says that someone who is guilty is innocent. First of all, that would be a lie. This is a common misunderstanding. The, the atonement does not concoct some fairy tale history about our sinfulness and guilt where God pretends, I didn't do it. The sinner is not cleared or exonerated. We don't get to say, I am not a sinner. The sinner is declared guilty. It is 
at the point of judgment that the sinner is redeemed. Or sorry, not at the point of judgment that the sinner is redeemed. We are judged guilty, but at the point of sentencing. You see, the law declares me a guilty and vile sinner, fully deserving eternal death under the wrath of God. There is no defense in the court of God's justice. Remember, every mouth has been shut. There is is no defense to bring forward. All that remains is the plea of guilty as charged. But then, at the point of my confession, at the point of my guilty plea, the power of the gospel rushes in. My penalty is paid in full. In Christ, I have already died, Colossians 3.3. And now my life is hidden with Christ in God. A double transfer takes place. Not only has he borne our iniquities and presented himself as the offering for our sin guilt, but God has credited Christ's own law obedience to the sinner, declaring them to be justified. Not because they have been cleared of their sin, but because they have been redeemed from their sin. When Martin Luther defined the doctrine of justification in the 16th century, he used a phrase in Latin which means, at the same time, just and sinner. That is to say, at the same time, uh, righteous and sinner. Saint and sinner, both at once. R.C. Sproul wrote, This gets to the heart of justification by faith alone. Though in and of myself I am a sinner, once I have received the benefit of Christ's propitiation, I am just in the sight of God, just by virtue of Christ's righteousness, sinner by virtue of my own performance. Romans 3.25b, this was to show God's righteousness, Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Despite all our failure, despite the failure of God's people throughout all generations, God has withheld final judgment on all those who had sinned. If if He had not shown such patience and forbearance, even the most righteous of people would have been consigned to hell because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us is pulling our weight. None of us is doing enough. But for God to be a just God... He also had to judge sin, not because someone was forcing him or there was some law higher than him, but that he cannot do other than is his own nature. And so God, being God, must judge sin. Any judge who overlooks a person's offenses without punishment cannot be said to be righteous or just. Can you imagine? Someone brutally attacks you, someone kills someone you love, someone steals everything you have, and you you bring this before the judge, and the judge says, I'm going to let them go this time. But don't don't worry, I'm a just and righteous judge, but this time, I'm just going to let it go. 
You, you would not believe them when they tell you that they're a righteous judge. You're going to say, no, you are not. <laughs> so how can God overlook a person's offenses and then also be just? This is what the important message is here. This is why Jesus had to become the recipient of God's wrath in order for anyone to be saved. God's wrath that should have been directed at us has now been directed at Jesus. By sending Jesus to die as the sacrificial payment for our sins, God met His own righteous requirements so that He might be just. God has not let it go. He's not winked at sin. He's not passed on forever. He judges our sin on Christ. And at the same time, because of Christ's own righteousness being applied to certain sinners, and because belief in that fact produces the fruit of righteousness, the obedience of faith, God is also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It, this is the most amazing thing, and, and Paul has to lay out the logic for us. How can a God who is just overlook sin and pardon sinners? How can a God who is just also turn wicked sinners into righteous people? And then he explains. This answer, uh, sorry, answers the most important question produced by Paul's gospel. There, there's quite a few questions that come up with Paul's gospel of grace alone. Through Christ Jesus alone. And, and he answers all of them. But this is the, the most important question. This is the one he takes time to lay out the logic. How can a righteous God mercifully save sinners without compromising his justice? You know, often today we might think the pertinent question is how can God rightly punish human beings? That's, that's usually what I hear more often. How can a good God punish humans? Hopefully, through the last three chapters, we've seen how foolish that question is. We all deserve, rightly deserve, the condemnation of God. The question is not, how could God rightly punish human beings? The question is, how could He pardon any of us? The real problem, how can God justly forgive anyone at all? We have to get this church because otherwise, Romans 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, that's going to really offend you. You're going to really struggle. Even by me reading it, it's going to be like, why is Josh picking this to preach about today? Even though we're doing the whole book of Romans. You're not going to like it. You have to first come to this place where you say, oh, we all deserve hell. Remember how demons and humans rebelled against God, and then God said all the demons are going to go to hell? and I'm going to save some of the humans. You know, we're, we're, we have to see, oh, why, why did God do that? Why did He show any patience and mercy to humans? Shouldn't He have just, like, wiped them out and worked with dogs instead? They're, they have much better character. We, we have a, a humanism that has infiltrated the church, infiltrated our hearts, that makes us think that for God to be good, He has to do good things for people. We have to recognize, before we can understand the gospel, before we can understand everything else Paul's going to teach in Romans, we have to recognize we're the enemies of God, rightly deserve total destruction, eternal death, 
for our rebellion against God, for wanting to be God instead of God. If you or I had the power of God, for a moment we would kill God. That's how much we want to be in control without the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so the important question, how can God forgive anyone at all, is answered here that God vindicates His righteousness at the cross. He satisfies His holy wrath in sending His Son as a substitute for sin to demonstrate that the passing over of former sins is not because He winked at sin. He tolerated the sin of human beings only because He looked ahead to the death of His Son as an atonement for sin. The cross of Christ not only redeems those who believe, but more importantly, it vindicates God. It shows that He has not compromised His righteousness by His adoption of wicked sinners like me into His family of faith. God's saving righteousness is displayed also. So, there's two righteousnesses of God, not not to be separated, but to say He is righteous in His salvation and He's righteous in His judgment, and both take place at the cross of Christ. God's saving righteousness is displayed in that He kept His every promise to save a remnant of Israel and to wholly restore Israel by bringing people of every nation into a new covenant. I want to tell you that again. God promised all through the Old Testament that He would save a remnant of Israel, and He has kept every promise to preserve a remnant of Israel. And He has also promised to wholly restore Israel by bringing people of every nation into a new covenant. And He has done that also in Jesus Christ. And His judging judging righteousness, that is the righteousness is shown through His judgment to display His holiness, is displayed because Jesus took upon Himself the holy wrath of God that everyone else deserved. So, where do we find the fullest expression of God's covenant love? The cross of Jesus Christ. Where is the fullest expression of the terrible wrath of God? It is is also the cross where He pours out wrath upon His own Son to show us how serious He is about sin. The same act that shows God judges sin and, and yet is a loving and merciful God. When God spares me and gives me the gift of His kingdom and access into His presence and the new heavens and the new earth, it, it, He does not compromise His own integrity to do it. His righteousness is preserved and maintained throughout. The final verses give us three major conclusions from all the previous ones, Romans 3, 27 to 31. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one 
who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Three major conclusions drawn here. The first is that since righteousness is based on God-given faith in a God-given sacrifice, that is, what God has accomplished in Christ, there is no place for boasting in righteous works. Boasting would be a totally appropriate Christian behavior if righteousness were available based on what we do. In fact, you can tell in someone who calls himself a Christian whether or not they are trusting Christ for their salvation or whether they're trusting their own actions by just how arrogant they are. If it was anything at all based on what we do, we would have something to boast about. I could at least compare myself to to someone not as good as me and, and feel pretty good about myself. I could start thinking about people who are worse sinners so that I could feel just a little bit better. But faith achieves nothing. It does nothing on its own, but comes with an empty hand, receives and trusts in what God gives. Faith can't claim any credit since it doesn't accomplish anything. Instead, believers put their faith in what God has done in Jesus Christ. Many confess to believe in God's grace, maybe even confess salvation through grace alone, but then they believe that human work plays a fundamental role in obtaining salvation, even if it is that they have conceived of personal faith as that work. If so, they would have something to boast about. Oh, you had faith when other people didn't? Good job. Let's celebrate your action. But Paul opposes such synergism, banishing boasting from the Christian life. If our justification was even in part based on us, we would have something to boast about. It is the concept of justification by faith alone that crushes the voice of human arrogance and human pride. I am so grateful for these passages because you can't fathom what an arrogant punk I am without this truth. I desperately need the gospel to crush my arrogance and pride. And as I remind myself of it again, again, it's just that pride that keeps on jumping up just gets slammed down again. It's just face down on the mat. The gospel destroys our arrogance and pride. The second conclusion found here is that with boasting and keeping the law ruled out, there is no longer an ethnic advantage for Jews. The oneness of God demands that Jews and Gentiles are justified in the same way by faith. And in, in verse 30, Paul turns to the best-known verse in all of Judaism, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The, the oneness of God in the Old Testament is often connected to God's special covenant with Israel. One God has one people. 
In fact, there's a, a place in Scripture where it says that God divided the nations up amongst the other false gods, but He took for Himself one people, Israel, to worship the one true God. So it's heavily connected throughout the Old Testament that because God is one, He has one people, Israel. And so Paul picks up on that here. He says that the oneness of God necessitates that there is only one people of God, one way to salvation. Some have erroneously claimed that God has two ways of dealing with people, a special covenant for Jews and a separate covenant for Gentile believers. In Romans 2 and 3, though, Paul has clearly demonstrated that no one is ever saved by keeping the law because no one can fully keep the law. So let me read you a few passages here. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Who was? Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. How many bodies are we all baptized into? One. Who? Jews and Greeks, or another way of saying Jews and Gentiles. Slaves are free. All were made to drink of one spirit. Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God has chosen only one way of saving people, and that one way does not make use of the law at all. It is apart from the law, and by faith alone, whether one is a Jew or a Gentile. So, no matter how pious a modern Jew appears, if they, they are utterly lost under God's wrath until they have put their faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism, and those who reject Jesus are not the people of God. Finally, the third conclusion, verse 31, is that faith does not nullify the law. Instead, the gospel that Paul preaches establishes the law on its proper foundation, in its proper place. Remember, we talked about the law had a purpose, and people were misinterpreting the law to provide a different purpose. The law's purpose was to show us our sin. The law had not the purpose of saving us. With everything Paul has said up until now, one might assume that the law is no longer good for anything. But instead, Paul points out that it is the gospel that confirms the validity of the law. There, there's no value to the law without the gospel, not in any ultimate sense. The law needs the gospel to fulfill it. Faith in Jesus Christ is God's ultimate tool for bringing about His purposes that were expressed in the law. So God hasn't changed 
His opinions haven't changed. His thoughts haven't changed. His character hasn't changed. But the law was never intended to save. The law was intended to point us to Jesus Christ. So now in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the law fulfills its purpose, which it could not without Jesus. This is why we are people of the whole book, Old Testament and New. It is all of God's Word in perfect agreement together. Paul's not coming up with some new doctrine that wasn't already laid out in the Old Testament. It's just more clear now that Jesus has done what He has done, laid down His life. Faith in Jesus Christ is God's tool for bringing about what the law was pointing us to, Faith in Christ brings about the transformed heart and life that the law could only point to. This transformation upholds God's moral standards that were expressed in the law by producing the obedience of faith. So we don't live according to the law, but we live out the moral expressions of, that the law pointed to by obedience that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul's been making it absolutely clear from the beginning of Romans that the gospel he preaches is a gospel that leads to the obedience of faith, Romans 1.5. It is a gospel that not only saves from faith, but also saves for faith, Romans 1.17. It is this gospel that upholds the law for the law's purpose in revealing our desperate need for a salvation from outside of ourselves is fulfilled in the gospel. This is so important. What's the purpose of the law? The law's purpose is fulfilled in Jesus. The moral instructions of the law are not only upheld in the gospel, but they are actually fulfilled in the behavior of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, this is our worship to you. To ask for your word and your spirit to work a change in our thinking that produces a change in our doing. Transform us, I pray, as we are renewed in our minds. Sanctify us. Help us to grow in obedience as we see the total need we have for you. And now this morning, this incredible work you have done, this turning point towards the good news, but now, but God had a plan all along. Lord, may we give you all the glory, all of the praise. Forgive us for where we have held on to some of that for ourselves and walked in human arrogance and pride. Help us to know the joy of our salvation that can only come by recognizing this grace alone gospel. And God, it is my deep prayer that this church would become so enamored with this gospel so in love with this gospel, so transformed by this gospel that it would be on our tongues, that we would be preaching good news wherever we go, not because the law tells us we need to, but because of the transformation of our hearts and our love for you and our excitement about this gospel. 
Other gospels, false gospels, partial gospels are so boring. When we hear someone preach about them or someone talk about them, it's not just that they're wrong, it's just so lame. But this wonderful gospel, this good news of your work alone, choosing and saving a people to the full, justifying, sanctifying, glorifying, keeping us. Father, may we give you all glory and praise and live in the joy this gospel produces. We ask this for the glory of Jesus. Amen.